brought to you by Penguin. Welcome to the Penguin Podcast. Just a friendly warning that there is occasional use of strong language. Just before we begin, we'd love to know what you think about the Penguin Podcast. Share your feedback and you could be in with a chance to win a year's supply of audiobooks. Just go to the link in the episode notes of this podcast for more details. Now, can I just tell you that my grandfather was a tea merchant and he would be so disgusted with what I'm about to tell you. Hello, I'm Nihal Arthanaika and this is the award-winning podcast where authors and artists reveal how they harness their creativity by choosing objects that inspire them. In this second special edition, we've gathered together some more standout moments from chatting to the great and the good. Ian McEwan explains how a drawing of a squirrel's skull enlightened him and wonder author RJ Palacio tells us why she will never write and draw a graphic novel again. Jonathan Coe recounts what it was like to be the warm-up act for an Elvis impersonator and his Dark Materials author Philip Pullman brings an iconic object to a live event that literally made the audience gasp. So please, buckle in for another collection of the best bits, all in one handy, portable podcast. I have to say I loved speaking to Anthony Horowitz, author of the Alex Ryder series, which, you know, done pretty well sold over 19 million copies, and more recently, of course, The Moonflower Murders. I asked Anthony how much he's defined by his work, and not only was his answer surprising, but the conversation went in a direction I hadn't expected. I think I'm probably defined about 90% by that one thing. I mean, if you take away my writing and my, you know, look, I don't want to overclaim here. Like everybody, like you, like, like anyone listening to this, I, I, I have relationships, I'm, I'm married, I have a wonderful wife, I have wonderful sons, I am very fortunate that, that my books are brought in enough money to have a nice place to live, I go to the theatre and the cinema, I walk the dog, I go to Suffolk and, and I love that, I travel a certain amount. Don't let me try and, and sell the idea of the <laughs> sort of, you know, the, the, the manic writer sitting in his, you know, attic all day long, uh, just, just producing books. But that said, from my perspective... If you took away the books, the TV and the, and the other stuff that I write, I don't think I've got anything particularly to offer the world. I mean, you know, that, that is what I do and it's, it's what I love doing and, and what has had a certain degree of success. And outside that, not much. Yeah, it's really, it's really interesting you say that. I, I once interviewed the rapper Dave. I don't know if you've come across I love before. Dave. I, Dave yeah. is great. I interviewed him and he said, without music... I don't exist, which I thought was a profound thing to say. Well, I think I totally agree. And I'm so happy that you bring him into the conversation. Because it was only recently that I saw his, his rap about, um, sort of black, it was played in relation to Black Lives Matter. Yes, right, and yeah. I, I watched that, and I'm not even a huge aficionado of rap music, but I was, I, I felt almost tearful. It was so moving and so powerful. And he himself seemed so committed to the song that for you to then bring him up in this conversation and to tell me what you've just done, it's sort of, it, it's sort of something I completely understand and get. Another artist once told me life begins at the edge of my comfort zone, which I've also always liked. 
I think the comfort zone is my fear. It's like Alex Ryder. You know, I could have written by now 25 Alex Ryder novels. I mean, I have done 13 of them, so, no, so it's not exactly a small body of work, but, but I could set, settle back and do an Alex Ryder book every year and sort of have a formula and it works and everybody likes it. But to me, that is anathema. That is exactly the reason you don't become a writer, which is to sort of play safe. Again, you know, when my publishers asked me to do a um, series of murder mystery novels because they wanted a series, because series is for publishers help and, 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 you know, they're much more easy to sell to the market because, you know, people don't look for the next author book, they look for the next character book. The only way I could agree to do it, and I'm now talking about the Hawthorne series, in which there have been two, and which I think there'll be eight more, was to, was to do something completely different and to turn the whole whodunit thing on its head, put myself in as a character and play with the genre and, and take risks because, because that was the more exciting thing to do. I mean, what is the point of writing if you're not challenging yourself? Who knew we'd both be into Dave? Do go back and listen to the interview. Anthony also talks about the possibility of writing a Charles Dickens novel set in modern London. If that happens, I am most definitely in. Now, we know Nigella Lawson for her cookery programmes, but of course her first cookery book, How to Eat, was as much about writing as it was about recipes, and with it she broke the mould of traditional cookbooks. On the 20th anniversary of the book, She talks to Katie Brand about an object she literally can't write without and reveals what her rider is when she goes on tour. You first of all have to make yourself a hot cup of tea. Like, is it? Yes, and I also use it making tea as a way of having a bit of a pace and a think. I don't have email, I don't have my phone on. And I do need to walk up and down, and sometimes I need to work out a thought while moving. And so making tea is a very important part of it. Are you quite a tea connoisseur? I have just. You know, property, as in property is theft. Because you can get even and things... that's that, it. You can get all these things now, special kettles that don't I quite know. boil, Germans but just have that. come see, and got, I did have a German kettle which had different numbers, but now, can I just tell you, that my grandfather was a tea merchant and he would be so disgusted with what I'm about to tell you. OK, I'm braced. I've got a boiling water tap. Really? Because for him, it, tea had to be absolutely boiling. Well, that's why they say you can't get a good cup of tea in the in the states you because can't. they don't have kettles. Yeah, but they even have even their water. Their water's not hot. Mm. At first, when I went onto my boiling water tap, I did feel it was taking some of the ritual of waiting away. Mm. But now I've got used to it. <laughs> well, there you are. Now I've got used to it. I have a kettle for backup mm-hmm. should anything happen. And when I travel, I have my rider. My rider for work, I have to have a kettle I in my room mm-hmm. so I can make tea. The idea of having to phone room service to get a cup of tea would make me so stressed. So I come with tea bags and everything. Yeah, you're right. In American hotels, there's no kettle. No, I, have Just a, I need to have a kettle <laughs> and I, can't, I travel with my tea bags. My, <laughs> my Thai foo in, you know, crinkly cases in my suitcase. Now, I have to say, I was a pretty civilised DJ. But even I didn't go as civilised as asking for a tea caddy when I was DJing. No. Now, we learn so much here on the Penguin Podcast, and that is certainly true when we have guests on like Matt Parker, who is a self-titled stand-up mathematician. Originally a maths teacher from Australia, Matt finds the funny and fascinating side of numbers. Here he talks to Katie about his book Humble Pie, which is full of stories of when maths goes disastrously wrong. There was this aircraft in Birmingham and it was meant to be flying off to Malaga like a couple of days later. And the crew who were meant to be replacing the windshield didn't make it in overnight. And so the shift maintenance manager 
was like, oh, if it's not done, there's going to be knock-on delays and we're already behind. And he's like, oh, I used to, I've done these a couple of years ago. How hard can it be? And he flicked <laughs> through the manual and goes, okay, I reckon I can do this. But the main thing that went wrong was after they'd taken off the windshield and they'd gotten the old bolts out and they're like, oh, we better replace these. They go to the store and instead of looking up what part it is, they go through the different containers and compare them like you were doing a second ago. And they had taken out the 7D and they flicked through and they correctly identified it as a 7D, but they were out of the parts. And so they had to drive to this different storeroom. And later on, when we looked into it, when there was an investigation, bits were mislabeled, things were missing. There was only one light source. And, and this happened... was all in the middle of the night. In the middle of the night. It was three in the morning. It was raining. And you imagine this poor guy driving across Birmingham Airport and he ends up getting the wrong bolts. And he kind of eyeballed it and went, these look about the same. And th the problem now is we engineer things beyond tolerances that humans can easily detect. And so on one hand, this is quite a nice maths mistake because just the measurements were wrong. He got the wrong bolt. It's also an interesting part of how now we use maths to go beyond what humans could just do naturally. Sadly, through a series of more unfortunate mistakes, they put the wrong bolts in the aircraft. And when it took off, once it reached cruising altitude, the window blew out. Like oh there's the wrong, there's like about 90 of the wrong bolts, the window blew out. The pilot got sucked out the window. And so as the staff are coming back into the flight deck, because they heard this noise and everything went misty as it's depressurizing, they saw the pilot going out the window and managed to grab their legs. And on the way out, the pilot knocked off the autopilot. It's just incredible. And so the co-pilot's frantically trying to get the aircraft back under control. The, the actual pilot is now outside the plane. They held their legs for the 20 minutes it took to land the aircraft. And unbelievably, the pilot survived. Like, That's just, It's just incredible. And they went back. They, they recovered, went back to being a pilot. Just absolutely phenomenal. And then when they looked, they did the investigation later, they found out that they'd merely got the wrong bolts. And Matt went on to say that aviation is very good at having systems in place to stop mistakes, so you don't need to worry. This was an incredibly rare occurrence. Psychotherapist and author Philippa Perry came in to chat to me about The Book You Wish Your Parents Had Read, which delivers some brilliant insights into parenting and also ways to reason with adults too. Philippa's object, a very small but sturdy pair of walking boots, to one of the themes in her book. Pick your battles and go with the feelings. Me and my husband like to go for walks across the downs up and down Dale. This was so our little child could come with us. And what was interesting about the boots is that they made her feet too hot. And she did come up and down Dale, but she, she'd do it barefoot. She didn't want to wear the boots. And of course, after I'd invested, God knows what they were, £40 in a pair of walking boots. They're beautiful boots. Look at them, hardly used. But she was fine walking on sheep poo and rabbit poo and the odd bramble. And I wouldn't prefer to do that. I prefer to wear shoes. But I think we must learn that what makes us happy as adults won't necessarily make our child happy. She took to the downs like a Maasai warrior, yeah. not not like a middle class woman <laughs> going on a walk. Sounds like Mowgli. Yeah. She wears <laughs> shoes now. <laughs> well that's good. I mean in adult life that, I think she's that. Brings need me that. to something else. Go what works with the present and don't worry about the future. So if your five year old will only go on a long walk with bare feet, just go with it. 
Philippa and I also did a little role play about how to iron out differences of opinion. It involved pretending to do the dishes. Go back and have a listen to the whole interview if you can. And at that point, send in as a nomination to BAFTA my acting. In fact, don't do that. It was rubbish. Now, my next guest is known for being a fervent atheist, even though only two of the many books he's written are on the subject of religion. In his book, Outgrowing God, Richard Dawkins tells some fascinating stories about cults that have sprung up in more recent times, including one cult which holds Prince Philip in exceptionally high regard. Let's take a listen to that now. I think what you're referring to is the picture in Outgrowing God, which is a picture of a Pacific Islander carrying a, a framed photo of Prince Philip. He is a member of a cult in the South Sea Islands, which worships Prince Philip as a god. It's a kind of offshoot of the cargo cults, which particularly flourished after the Second World War, when there were various military bases, American, British, Australian, Japanese bases, in the Pacific Islands. And the islanders became aware that cargo, fridges, cars, radios, all sorts of lovely things were being rained down from the air by cargo planes. Great big cargo planes would land and disgorge these treasures, which the islanders understandably coveted. And they noticed that the military occupiers didn't seem to actually do anything to earn these wonderful things. They just arrived. And so they assumed that they were sent by the gods or sent by the ancestors. So when the occupying forces left at the end of the war, Uh, The cargo stopped coming, of course, and then they tried to persuade the ancestors or the gods to restart the flow of cargo planes by doing things like building dummy airports. So that was the cargo cults. Then there was the cult of John Frum, who was a figure worshipped as somebody who was going to return, rather like Jesus. And nobody quite knows the origin of the name John Frum. One theory is that he was a, an, an American soldier who introduced himself as John Frum America. So Frum being the American pronunciation of Frum. David Attenborough has a lovely story of how he was talking to a man there who was a worshipper of John Frum. And he said, well, it's 20 years now that you've been worshipping John Frum and he's not come. So the man who was called Sam said, yes, but you, your man, Jesus, has been supposed to be coming back up for 2,000 years, and he hasn't come. So I'm prepared to wait a bit longer for John Frum. <laughs> anyway, the, the, the Prince Philip cult is an offshoot of this. Prince Philip visited these islands on a tour when he went on a tour without the Queen. He was worshipped and still is worshipped as a god uh, on at least one of these of these islands. Not many people know that Richard Dawkins has a light-hearted side. In the interview, he told me that some of his best friends are bishops, Have a listen back to it in full if you get the chance. The Times featured our next guest on its list of the 50 greatest British writers since 1945. Ian McEwan chose an inspirational object, which stumped him at first until he realised it revealed something very important about his writing style. Here he is talking to Katie Brand. Moving on to your next object, which yeah. you've brought along, is a drawing of a skull, a particular skull, a, a squirrel, I think. Tell us a bit about what, what's inspired you to bring that along. 
This has only come into my life very recently. In November, I was in China. I was in Beijing, and a young woman gave it to me, and she was looking at me in that sort of. So there, now you know, don't you? And I, and I said, uh, I'm afraid I didn't. She said, well, you must know. You must recognise it. And uh, I said, no. She said, well, it's a squirrel skull. <laughs> and I said, right. She said, well, you wrote about it. And I said, did I? I said, oh, I, no. <laughs> and I was thinking she must be confusing me with, you know, Will Sulfur. I did mm. some other writer. She said, in atonement. She said, it's written on the back. So I turned it over. And it's about the young heroine of atonement. And here it is a quote from... And it said, No one knew about the squirrel's skull beneath her bed, but no one wanted to know. So Bryony wants to be a writer, and she's also a very secretive person, and she has a secret box, and in it she puts all her secrets. Do you think they go hand in hand, secrecy and, want, and uh, writing? Yes, I do, and that's why this squirrel is in this studio now. Right. I think secrecy and writing... Uh, um, are related quite intimately, or they certainly are for me. Walking around with a half-written novel in your head is very much like having a squirrel under the bed, a squirrel skull. Ian McEwan there, who came in to talk about his novel Machines Like Me. Now, another hugely inspirational author that I chatted to was R.J. Palacio, author of the children's book Wonder, which started the Choose Kind movement and was made into a feature film with Julia Roberts and Owen Wilson. RJ, a former illustrator, came in to talk about White Bird and explains why she's done with graphic novels. She just wants to stick to the words from now on. Here I ask her, do the illustrations always have to follow the words? I knew it was going to be a graphic novel, but I didn't know that I was going to be illustrating it. I knew that I was going to be laying it out, though. So I wrote the entire thing at the same time I sketched it all out, little thumbnail sketches. So I had laid the entire thing out, again, almost like it was, um, I, I saw it as this little movie inside my head. So I knew it, it had a very cinematic quality to it. So in a way, it was easier for me to lay it out and draw it and write it at the same time. And the idea was I was going to give all my sketches to an illustrator and have them just do the graphic novel. And then I had done so much work on it already and I had all the whole, the whole thing laid out. I just thought, well, I might as well just draw it myself. You know, how hard could it be? And, and I'll tell you, it was really hard. Yeah, well, I had no idea. You're no stranger to illustration, though, <laughs> let's be honest. I don't know what I was thinking. I honestly, I, I thought I'd done most of the work and, and I guess I felt like if I handed it off to someone... Uh, you know, maybe I'm just a control freak. I just knew that they would sort of do their own thing. And, and I really had a very set concept of how, um, of how to tell the story in a visual way. That was the first time we discussed the process of writing and drawing a graphic novel on the Penguin podcast. It'll be a huge shame if that was RJ Palacio's last. Check out White Bird to see what I mean. It was a pleasure to talk to Bernadine Ivaristo about her novel, Girl, Woman, Other, and how she becomes inspired. But I couldn't let the interview pass without asking her how, as the first black woman to win the Booker Prize, she dealt with certain sections of the media, literally making her invisible. <laughs> you know, I think we all know what, yes. what you're talking about when some a newsreader decided to call you the other I know, author. I know. And that's extraordinary. Did, did that hurt or did it um, just anger you or were you kind I was of outraged. water off a 
Okay. It wasn't, I wasn't it didn't it. hurt me because I was and still am riding so high oh, on having sure. won the booker. Yeah. So it's like you can't you can't yeah, hurt yeah. me really yeah, at the yeah, moment. Yeah, yeah. But I was outraged because I thought I've just won this major prize yeah. and this very experienced broadcaster has completely erased me from it in that moment. Um, and people said to me, um, oh, well, you know, he just forgot. And I said, well, yes, he shouldn't have forgotten. And maybe my name did, hadn't even registered with him, right? So what I really uh, appreciated about, I tweeted it, was that the number of people who were outraged on my behalf. Yeah, they were. And that's the power of social media, right? You can protest and it can. there's a ripple effect and it just goes out there into the world. So he had to apologise and, and the BBC apologised. But I guess it's a reminder of how much, even with the progress that's made, how much is still to be. Yes. And where people's blind spots are. Mm. Bernadine Evaristo there. And a quick reminder, we'd love to hear what you think about this podcast. Just tap on the survey link in the episode notes. Share your feedback and you could be in with a chance to win a year's supply of audiobooks. Now, one of Jonathan Coe's objects was a copy of the Today newspaper, which led to a brilliant story about him being a writer-in-residence on a cruise ship. Let's hear that now. So, yes, there's a scene... Uh, <laughs> I thought I had to use this experience somehow in uh, in Middle England. So there's a, there are a couple of chapters where my my art history lecturer, Sophie, gets invited to uh, to give some lectures on... I don't call it a saga cruise. I call it a legend cruise. And at the very beginning of this chapter, she has a, a moment, which is what also happened to me, where you're taken to see the cruise director, whose job is to organise all the entertainment on the cruise... And it was a very nice guy in my case called John Parton. And uh, he had not really, as far as I could make out, been forewarned that I was coming on the cruise. This had been cooked up between, <laughs> between Saga and Penguin. And when I got there, he was kind of slightly shocked. And we were in his cabin and there were, there were ventriloquists, there were jugglers, there was an Elvis impersonator and all this kind of thing. And everybody was getting up and telling him what they did. And he said, yeah, you can go on on six o'clock on Tuesday evening and this kind of thing. And then he came to me and said, what do you do? And I said, well, I kind of write novels. <laughs> and he, he could just, his, his face sort of fell and he, he said, well, you know, what am I going to do with that? So he, in, there was also um, the literary journalist from Sunday Times, Peter Kemp, was also on board, so we did um, we did a kind of Q and A slot together. Here it is, advertised eight forty five on the evening of the twenty fifth of August, two thousand fourteen. Tonight, literary journalist Peter Kemp will interview our special guest, special guest author Jonathan Coe, and I was on uh, just before uh, a thing called Love Me Tender, an electrifying tribute to the music of the king of rock and roll, Mr. Elvis Presley. So basically, I was I was the warm up act to this Elvis Presley uh, tribute <laughs> tribute show. I'll be honest, I didn't do a very good job of warming the audience up in readiness for Elvis. There was a kind of audible sigh of relief among the audience when uh, when Peter and I left the stage and and Elvis took over. Jonathan Coe there on the sometimes extraordinary life of a jobbing writer. Next up, the enormously popular No Such Thing as a Fish podcast is where Dan, James, Anna and Andy, researchers for the TV show QI, talk about their favourite facts. And one of that team, Andrew Hunter-Murray, decided to write a thriller, The Last Day, and tell us all about it. One of his objects was, of course, fact-based. Here he is talking to Katie Brand. 
So let's move on to your next object. This is a stuffed dog. He's called Station Jim, and he is visible to members of the public. Mm-hmm. You can go and see him at Slough Railway Station, where he is in a glass case on the platform. And this is somehow connected to the podcast No Such Thing as a Fish, the QI <laughs> yeah. uh, spin-off podcast that you co-host. So please connect the two for me now, if you can. Uh, we've We've covered him on the podcast, and I think that all four of us who do the show have different areas of expertise and different obsessions as well. My thing is animals being parachuted from planes, which has been done a huge number of times, especially with dogs. Dogs were parachuted in the Normandy landings uh, into northern France, and um, even recently the US forces were parachuting in German shepherds uh, when they were trying to not, take on the Taliban. Not alone, surely. Not alone, not alone. They're strapped you, to a person. have a dog strapped to your <laughs> okay, front. Okay, yeah, fine. Yeah. I'm just imagining looking up and just seeing <laughs> 150 <laughs> Alsatians floating yeah. gently to earth. Station Jim is kind of tangentially related to these guys in that he was the station dog for Slough Railway Station in the, I think, late 19th century. And he had a little charity box on him, which he wore like a like a pistol in a holster. And you would put a coin in if you saw Station Jim and you were passing him by and you were feeling generous. And he was raising money as he went around the station for the widows and orphans of the men who'd been killed working on the railway. Why have you chosen it for this in particular? Is it to do with the diversity of interests that you have as a team? or It's partly that. I think it's something also about human eccentricity I really admire and delight in. So that's probably why I've picked him. And Andrew's book, The Last Day, has since been voted one of the Sunday Times books of 2020. Now, Sue Perkins had the pleasure of chatting down the line to the author of a number of New York Times bestsellers, including Blink and Outliers. His name, Malcolm Gladwell. Malcolm's latest book, Talking to Strangers, What We Should Know About the People We Don't Know, is a fascinating look into the consequences of misjudging those we don't know. And for one of his inspirational objects, he chose the theme tunes to the TV show Friends. I hate Friends. Here's why. Yeah, I was interested in this idea. One of the ideas that runs in the book is the difficulty we have in making sense of what other people are feeling. And one of the reasons we have such difficulty in decoding other people's emotions is we have an operating assumption that emotion is represented in facial expression and body language. And one of the reasons we believe in this incredibly simplistic and deeply flawed assumption is because television shows teach us to think that. Hmm. So I did this fun thing where I took an episode of Friends and I had an expert in facial expression analyze the expressions of all the characters in a key scene and then see if, is it true in Friends that when Joey is unhappy, he looks unhappy? You know, when... Uh, Phoebe is agitated, she looks agitated, and when Rachel is delighted, she looks delighted. There is never a case in Friends where (laughs) the emotion that is felt on the inside is not represented perfectly on the outside. In real life, we don't do that, not even remotely. But if you spend a lot of time watching television, you can easily come to believe that that's the way the world works. So that's why I chose the Friends theme song. The example that you use, which was incredibly interesting and explained an awful lot, was Amanda Knox. We all judged her based on what we perceived to be a strange reaction to grief. Yes. And just yes. because she's mismatched and doesn't necessarily do the jaw drop or the eyes widening or the shaking, it doesn't mean that she was guilty. I have a whole chapter on her because she's such a kind of heartbreaking example of the consequences of this naive faith we have that we can 
tell what someone's thinking and feeling just by observing their behavior. And do check out Malcolm's audiobook of Talking to Strangers, which is beautifully produced with sound effects, archive clips, and a theme tune by Janelle Monet. And finally, we can't go without playing an extract from one of our live events. This time, it's with the author of The Book of Dust and His Dark Materials trilogies, Philip Pullman, recorded at the Sheldonian Theatre in Oxford with author Sophie Dahl. When he produces one of his chosen inspirational objects, listen out for the audible gasp from the audience. She's given, early on in the story, that opens his dark materials, she's given an object by the Master of Jordan College. She's given an alethiometer. And there is an actual alethiometer. There are only six made. And, um, <laughs> uh, and I've got one of them. Actually, there have been several hundred made now. There's props for films and various things. But they don't work, and this one does. Um, it's a truth-telling device. That's what the, the name means, Alethea, the truth. And it works by means of symbolism. The symbols around, 36 symbols around the edge of this picture, and you move the hands to point to three of the symbols in total with which you ask a question, and then the hand moves around and settles on the different symbols that give you the answer. But I first read a book called The Giordano Bruno and the Hermetic Tradition by a woman called Frances Yates, who is the great expert on um, Renaissance symbolism and imagery and so on. And that's what, um, many years later, made me think of these symbols that you can use to ask and answer questions. May I describe them for the people who are, yeah. who are listening and not here? So... This is this enchanting golden compass, and there are symbols all along it. So we have a beehive, we have an apple, there's a raven. Absolutely beautiful, and it really works. I used it downstairs. <laughs> you ask it a question, and um, pull well, up this, the pin. They all work in different ways. Lyra's works um, slightly differently from this. Yes. Lyra's is a slightly different shape, too, because this one is rather thick. And you couldn't really easily put it in a pocket, as you I can. I could. <laughs> <laughs> you could just take it home um, and put it in I your think pocket. the one they're using in the telly series is square. Oh no! It's a travesty. <laughs> and that closes another special edition of the Penguin Podcast. If you've missed any of the episodes featured, they're all waiting to be downloaded for free. Please do remember to subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. We have lots of exciting new interviews with authors and live events coming up. And do rate and comment. We love to know what you think. And please let everyone you know, know about this podcast. Audiobooks for all the guests featured today are available from Audible, Apple Books and all audiobook retailers. Thank you so much for listening and see you very soon. Zadie Smith, Intimations. From the best-selling author of White Teeth and Swing Time comes Intimations, six deeply personal essays crafted with wit and passion on the experience of lockdown during the COVID-19 pandemic. Stylish and tender, Zadie Smith provides profound insights into unprecedented times. If you make things, if you're an artist of whatever stripe, at some point you will be asked, or may ask yourself, why you act, sculpt, paint, whatever. In the writing world, this question never seems to get old. In each generation, a few too many people will feel moved to pen an essay called inevitably Why I Write or Why Write.
under which title you'll find a lot of convoluted, more or less self-regarding reasons and explanations. I've contributed to this genre myself. The audiobook edition of Intimations is available to download now.